The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning together, your people, your family, your children, and like children speaking to a wise father, we say, would you please teach us, would you please shape us? We need help. So Father, would you this morning now draw near and shape us and grow us up, will you Give us help. Please put your spirit here in our midst and power. He, of course, is always here. He is dwelling within each of your people. He is in the midst of us here, but we ask you to put him here in power, that you would assign him a task in power to change us and build us up, to bring honor to the Son and make us a community that's different. So help us, Lord. Be here now in power and raise us up to send us out in power as your people in the world. That's our hope. That's our request of you. Grow us up. Change us. Honor Christ in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We all want to live in the sort of community or society web of relationships that works like a good family, a group where there is love, but where that love is true. It's not based on avoidance of evil or wrong or just looks the other way, glances over stuff, but in fact, it's, it's true. There's real love that is righteous and just and is about the truth. That kind of community, everybody wants it because that kind of community is delightful. There's something in us that longs for that. We thrive in that sort of environment. We grow in it and we're constantly after it. But it often seems like we can only get one side or the other of that tension. We can get righteousness and justice and truth, but that proves hard and harsh and crushing. Anything but sweet and loving Or on the other hand, you can get accepting love that just overlooks and avoids talking about anything that's wrong, doesn't correct anybody, just lets everything, but that always ends up corrupt and immoral and destructive. We want both of these, but but we have a difficulty for any length of time having both of them, and, and we know that with one half or the other, something is unsatisfying, something's missing. We we need both of them, but we have a really hard time getting there. We all want this and that sort of community, that sort of family, and how it comes about. So what that family looks like, what it it does, and how it comes about, what we're going to think about one more time today as we conclude our short study in the book of Philemon. Philemon is this letter written by Paul to a man named Philemon who was a master who owned a slave in the city of Colossae, and we've been looking at this over the last two weeks. And really, in some ways, what I'm going to do today, as I, as I look at uh, the very end of it, verses 17 and following, I'm going to make two observations that really kind of could be parts three and four of last week, 
or really kind of could be parts five and six of the week before that. Because this is sort of so brief and, and so concise that there's, there's a lot of overlap. But what I want to do this morning is look particularly at what does, what, how does this get applied into the family life? How, how do we live with ourselves and with others? And how do we get there? How does that get formed in us? So, a lot of connection, but we're going to think about it a little more deeply this morning. And I'm, I'm going to start reading in verse 15 and following, and I'll finish it out. This is Philemon beginning verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he, that's Onesimus, the slave, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the, at the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So two observations. Here's the first. About what we are. The family of God lives out righteous, just love in every area, in every issue of life. So I'm particularly going to lean on the every issue, every area. The family of God lives out righteous, just love in every area, in every issue of life. My thinking here comes from especially verse 21, though it's shaped by the whole letter. 21, Paul writes, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. So it tells us that Paul knows Philemon is a man submitted to God who is conscious about and wants to be obedient to God. And so Paul expects him to do what is required, but which he didn't command. Call it back from verse 8. It's required that Philemon lay aside his rights and receive Onesimus as a beloved brother like he would receive Paul. Just like he says in 17, receive him like you would receive me. So starting there, and I know you will do even more than that. Like what? Well, it doesn't say. Maybe, maybe what Paul means there kind of written between the lines is, and though I didn't exactly say this, I know that you will legally set him free. Could well be that. Could be that. Could also be, I think this is pretty likely, send him back to help me in Rome. Verse 13, that, that's what Paul kind of wanted to do. He, I, I need him here. 
and, and I want him here, and he's very dear to me, and, and he wants to be here, and he finds himself useful here, and he loves me, and he wants to be here, I want him here, so send him back to me. Could be that. Could be a combination of the two. Could be anything about Onesimus. It could be about maybe Philemon has other slaves. Historians tell us that, particularly in that time, it was very rare for someone to have only a single slave. He might have others, and he might be expected to think, this probably applies to them too. If we read the end of Colossians, where Paul gives commands to the slaves and the masters, we can probably discern that there were other slaves and masters in the church in Colossae. Maybe he's supposed to say something to them. Maybe there's some wider application to the others in the congregation or some combination of all of that. This has wider impact than just this one person, Onesimus, and it also has wider impact than just the issue of slavery. And to be clear here, I'm not saying that I read verse 21 and this is what Paul meant, what I'm, what I'm going to say here, what, what's coming up. But what I am saying is that when Philemon read verse 21, that sentence in the letter that he received, Paul meant for Philemon to think, how else should I apply this? You will do even more than what I say. Like what? What else should I do? Paul means for Philemon to think that, this obedient Christian man. And so when we come to this as obedient Christian people, we should read this and think, how else should this apply? If we'd be a people who, from faith in Christ, lay down our rights, like is expected of us here, like is required, if we'd be a people who lay down our rights and in love recognize the diverse, equally valued brothers and sisters here in the family of God, this is last week, if we, if we were to be that kind of people and see that, where would that lead us? It would cut off slavery at the knees, of course, sure. Because the idea of me owning my brother becomes impossible to justify. Impossible. So yeah, sure, it cuts off slavery at the knees, but, but what else? Because if that's all that it's about, we, probably most of us here don't wonder about that question, so there's nothing sharp for us in this letter. Nothing poking us. So what else? What else might it mean well, surely there is more here. We've talked about some of it already. I'm not going to revisit all this, about thinking of church as family and, and loving brothers and sisters and laying aside rights. We talked about some of this last week. But there's a way that I think we should think about this that puts kind of feet to these ideas of laying aside rights and loving brothers and sisters. Turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 58. And as I say that, you probably realize he never says that. I know I'm going to another testament, another writer, another book. I, I recognize that, but I think there's a principle here that, that applies, and this is worth seeing. It's worth us thinking about. We're not going to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 58, just a few verses. Look, look at it later if, if you have the time. But as you're turning there, a bit of context. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet speaking for the Lord against his Old Testament people, giving them hard words. 
explaining to them why they are about to go into exile, this great judgment they're going to face. So when we read this, we come back, we turn back to it. We're not going to read it in the same context. This is not God directly saying to us, this. That is what's going on in Isaiah. But we don't have this coming from God to us. However, when we read it, we should look at it and say, but this is what God wants in his people and is grieved by when it's not. This is what pleases God and God smiles upon and God is displeased with. We, we can see that here. So, verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 58. People of God are confused. They regularly draw near to God, seeking God, seeking his will, even fasting, it says. Very serious religious appeal to God, and yet God ignores them. Why? Middle of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Four, you fast, but it ends up in fighting and violence. That kind of fasting does not gain my ear. God is saying, verse 5, I'm not looking for religious behavior. I'm not looking for religiosity. Here's what I'm looking for in my people. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Seems like God is against something like slavery. Oppression. Exploitation of workers, enslaved and otherwise. And continuing right on. Share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and clothe the naked. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. That is, from your brothers, your sisters, your family. He touches on a few representative categories there. We should look at them and see there's, there's social misfortune, there's oppression, there's hardship, there's, there's difficulty, there's suffering amongst the family of God and the good religious pious church people are really tempted, and in Isaiah's case, were, tempted to just kind of like look away from that and cry out to God, Lord, draw near, give us grace, give us your wisdom, give us your help, give us your mercy, never mind them, pipe down, I'm talking to God. And God says, I'm not here for that. I'm out. I'm out. I care about, to use language from last week, your brothers and sisters equally valued, very diverse, equally valued, and I care about your oppressed workers and your poor and your homeless and your hungry, your own flesh, your brothers and sisters that you avoid. Receive them like you'd receive Paul or Moses, maybe in the Old Testament. So that's God in, in Isaiah, and the application there is, is clear and obvious. All the social concerns of the body are concerns to God. Slavery? Yep. And hunger and homelessness, poverty, oppression of workers, etc. Do not hide yourselves from your own flesh, but give yourselves to them and for them in these tangible ways. 
Philemon tells us, put some, some words on that, lay aside your rights and recognize them as beloved brothers and sisters in Christ and love them by feeding them and helping them and clothing them and sheltering them in all these tangible ways, which of course, we've got to be immediately honest, doesn't actually tell us anything specifically about any specific situation with any specific current suffering brother. Of course not. How could it? It's thousands of years ago. We're left in need of wisdom. What is exactly? Okay, I read that passage. I, I see the, the connection here to what, that's what it would mean to love my brother, love my sister, love my own flesh. I, I see that, but what is the best way to share my bread with a hungry brother? Maybe give him some bread, literally. Or maybe give him some money or a gift card so that he can buy bread. Or maybe give him a job so that he can earn it. Or maybe give him nothing but tough love. Mindful of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 where he teaches that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's tough love. Does that apply in this situation? Well, you won't know. You can't know until first Philemon has gripped you. What we see here from Paul has gripped you so that love from faith with laid down rights grips you. In other words, the love part grips you. The tough part comes easy. Tough part comes easy. We won't know what should I do here until the love part grips us, and probably we should be biased towards the love part like we are with our own biological kids, our own biological family, right? We give them a second and a third and a fifth chance. We should probably be biased that way, but we won't know what is right until first we are a people who are gripped by and are shaped by. I lay down my rights in faith, trusting Christ, in love towards you. God is very concerned that his people be very involved with that kind of wise, loving care for his body. Wise, loving care for his body, for his family, for our brethren, our brothers and sisters. And Philemon should teach us that. And as I look around, I am often very encouraged by this, by this family. And and how it is that we do this very sort of thing. So very much so, not just because the context is different, but because I, I think it is appropriate to say to this church, good. I am often very encouraged by how this body responds to teaching like this. And it's, it's not just in Philemon, or you can find it everywhere. So rather than a rebuke, this is, this is more of a Excel still more, sort of teaching, sort of exhortation. And it may be that we will have increasing opportunities to excel still more. Congregations change over time. They all do. And as our congregation changes and as we, we come into contact with or become more aware of other congregations that are in our midst or near us, other people come into our congregation, things will change and grow and we will have increasingly, I hope and pray, opportunity 
to love the brothers and sisters in tangible ways, laying down our rights and giving. So I think God has graciously grown us in this and, and excel still more. This is what we are. This is who we are, what the family of God is supposed to be. But I think we can take this one step further even. Is there a way that this kind of teaching should apply beyond the family of God to those who are not in the church? Because up to this point, if you've noticed, very carefully, every passage, every, every verse has been about the brothers and the sisters, family, the church. What about those outside? Because there isn't actually anything here about those outside, their social troubles and their hardships and their concerns, the non-Christian world. It's not here, right? Well, not directly, but indirectly, yes, it is. And we've got to say that because sometimes people will, you'll, you'll hear this, this was very common in certain theological schools, you'll very commonly hear the brotherhood of man, the, the brotherhood of all of humanity and the fatherhood of God, as if there is one father and we all are brothers and sisters. That's not true. The brothers and sisters are the church. But the reason they did that is this kind of instinctive, well, but these verses, these passages should tell us something about how to treat the world, and they do. Like this. We, the church, we are, we need to think of ourselves as this, the new humanity. We are the new and right community, the new and right society, formed and being formed by God. This is what God means human community to be like when it's done right, which we have to admit isn't always the case with us because we're sinners. But we're like children growing up. We, we do it poorly, inexactly, in but increasingly better. God is growing us up and maturing us. And when this is all done right, this, the church, is the new community. This is what humanity, what human interaction is supposed to look like, what's proper. And so then we can think, if something is improper or wrong, unjust, unloving in this context, it's improper, wrong, unjust, and loving, and we shouldn't do it, period. To anybody. You realize some people in history have taken this book and said, I get it. I have to let my Onesimus, my Christian slave, free. Slave owners in America said that. And then sometimes tried to keep the Christian message away from their slaves so they wouldn't become Christians and have to set them free. What hypocrisy. But that's been done. If it's wrong to do to a brother, it's wrong. 
This is how humanity, this is how humankind is supposed to work. And if we wouldn't treat each other that way, we shouldn't treat people that way, period. We want to live out righteousness and just love in every issue, in every area of life, as far as it's up to us. We don't have the right to force that on the world out there. But we do and must be like that ourselves. Like Paul in Philemon would have us to be, that's how we have to be within ourselves, modeling that and then living that out towards others, inviting them to join us, reasoning with them that this is the best way to live. This is what's best for society. And we may not get, we may not get that persuasion done, but we, we try to persuade, we try to reason, we try to model. And from that platform, we step out and we engage with all the issues in the world, the myriad of issues, every issue in every area of life. So if you get this, if you think about this, this tells us how to approach the question of, say, a border wall. Oh, finally. The pastor's going to tell us if we should have a border wall or not. (laughs) Tells us how to approach the question of, say, a border wall or universal health care or foreign trade agreements, or the drawing of congressional districts, or minimum wage laws, or city council decisions about the location of the next homeless shelter or new tracks line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. International, national, local issues that are all debated and decided because, and they impact people. And this tells us, Paul in Philemon gives us a framework that tells us how to approach everything. Everything. He doesn't tell us where to end up on anything, how to approach it. So there isn't an answer here. You know, what does the Bible say about a border wall? Nothing, which is a lesson to us all. But it tells us how to approach issues like that and everything. As we would expect, it doesn't, it doesn't pronounce on these things because all of those subjects, everything that I mentioned and everything else, are all incredibly tricky and require a host of input from all kinds of other disciplines, right? But this kind of framework, if, if Philemon would grip us so that we would be a people with laid down rights who are deeply concerned to trust in Christ, love others, without that, We're not going to be able to talk to all the people from the other disciplines, let alone, importantly, listen to them. Sift through all the information that is colored by changing times and colored by bias and colored by opinion. We need to be a people who are gripped by this and then from this place, standing on this platform, step out and and interact with all the issues in life Concerned, I'm not about defending my own rights. Concerned, I, I want to listen to what's right and just and what loves everybody, people on both sides of the wall. What is loving of people? I'm not in it for me. I'm in it for, for the love of people, for the honor of God. So what would that be? And you, and you can listen then. And from that place, you can engage and you can reason things out. And then ultimately you can say, and I trust what is going to be a partially informed, partially guess verdict, decision. 
in faith towards Christ, I trust it to him. He judges justly. He holds the future in his hand. It's going to be okay. My life is not hinging on health care or not, wall or not. He reigns, and I trust him. Faith towards Christ, entrusting ourselves to a God who reigns. We make, or others make, decisions that are part wise and part guess and all in his hands. So if you work through all that, this is all application coming out of, ultimately for me, coming out of verse 21. What else does this mean? What else does it mean? And it means that we are a people who walk out righteousness and justice and love into every area for every issue in the church and outside of it. In other words, we are the type of community that we all want. A place that is both righteous and just and about truth and tender and loving and caring. Both. Everywhere. The new humanity. How does that come about? Because you can't just say that. How does it come about? Well, that's the second observation. Only the gospel of grace generates the right and just community of love we long for. Only the gospel of grace generates the right and just community of love we long for. So what we see depicted here in this letter is this little family, this this community characterized by love. The word is all over the book. Brotherly love characterizes this little church. Verse 17, Onesimus is received by his master like, like Paul receives him as a brother, which Paul calls Philemon a brother again in our verse, for kind of sending us back to the beginning where he did the same thing. Spiritually looking for refreshment of heart, my brother, like Philemon does, refreshes the saints. That's his love towards them. So love is all over this. Love and care and concern and refreshments all over this, as is righteousness and just truth. Philemon is not coerced here, not manipulated. But everybody reading the letter knows that there's something he's required to do and that he will obey. So there's, there's no like equivocating here. There's no, there's no like your li- liberty to do what's right or wrong. No, there is clearly a right that's pronounced in a public context. This is what is required. You have to lay aside your rights. And you have to receive them in a way that would eliminate every bit of injustice and every bit of oppression that would cut loose the bonds of the yoke. You have to. Required. And furthermore, any wrongs, any financial problems that were created, Paul says, I'm going to settle those too. We're not just going to ignore that. I'll take care of that. So that will be even and, and leveled out. The whole situation here is about righteousness and justice and truth and about love and refreshing of the body. 
It's the kind of community we want. And the question here is, how did that come about? How does Paul get there? Only by means of the gospel of God's grace changing the internal heart of people. And you can see this as you look at this short letter. Never exactly in any sentence, but in the atmosphere that's in the whole room. Reaching back into 15 and 16, Onesimus has become a Christian and the gospel has changed him and changed how Philemon and Onesimus relate to each other now. They are brothers in the Lord. In the Lord. That's union with Christ language. That's all over this. This is the verses we read this morning even. You see, in the Lord and in the Lord and in Christ and in Christ Jesus and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again and again. Union with Christ. And if you look at the very last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, if that's plural, with you all, with your spirit. It's a final note about how the whole church is filled with God's enabling, blessing, empowering grace. Like he said at the beginning, grace to you and peace from God. Front and back. How does the grace come? Grace comes to them and grace continues to come through them in and because of what God did in Jesus, because of the gospel. God in grace sent Christ and God in grace opened their eyes to see what Christ accomplished in his sacrifice and God in grace saved them and God in grace today and tomorrow and the next day meets them and God in grace promises to meet them tomorrow and on in the future to give them everything that they need, to give us everything that we need. Grace from God in and because of the gospel. And so they all together are united by this grace. Objects of this grace come from the gospel. And the gospel is what Paul and Philemon have in common as they are partners, what they're partners in in verse 17. Like the fellow prisoner Epaphras, like the fellow workers listed in verse 24. They are about something together. They are a a brotherhood that's about the ministry of the gospel. And then Paul shows that it's marked him with life as he, in his life as he lays down his rights and even speaks like Jesus. If there's anything that he owes you, put it on my account. I'll pay it. None of those things is actually a sentence that says what I'm saying. The gospel of grace shapes and changes this community to make it a people of love and justice. But the whole atmosphere here is, this is what we are. In the Lord, in Christ, brothers, by the gospel, objects of grace, fellows in the ministry. This is what we're about. It's the note struck again and again and again. And the key to understanding all this is that that's how Paul thinks 
he'll accomplish Onesimus' deliverance. Not by law, not by command, not by pulling rank, not by asking for a favor, but just by, in a sense, writing a letter that is gospel and grace and salvation and brotherhood and family. So do what you think is right, brother. Paul thinks that preaching the gospel will end slavery for Onesimus and render slavery itself an institution untenable. Which tells us something about the priority of the church even when and especially when social change or moral or ethical change is what we're after. More than once, I, I, this probably like increased when, when Barack Obama was president and it has gone to warp speed with Donald Trump becoming president. But more than once, I've had people say to me, why don't you tell us, or usually tell them, what the Christians are supposed to do about what President Obama's doing, what Hillary Clinton might do, what Donald Trump is doing or threatening to do. I'm serious. All the time. Not from everybody, but frequently. And if it's not what I should say to you, it's what the church should say to the church or what the church should say to the world. D dive in. I mean, okay, so the last point, you, like, you mentioned some of these things, but you, didn't, you blew it because you didn't tell them what I know the right answer is. Why not? Because I'm afraid I'll lose people. Half the congregation will, no, that's not why. That's, that's not why. It's because that's not our, my, our job. And it doesn't work anyway. Paul thinks, I'm going to end slavery. And I'm going to do that by preaching the gospel to the slave master and the whole church. And when God in grace takes that message and grabs a hold of this guy's heart, that thing dies. It can't do otherwise. And on things that aren't so clearly wrong and evil, where there are like judgment calls and lots of information to be you know, policy decisions, well then these people will move into those with a kind of attitude that can be wise, that can listen and talk and discern. In other words, what's right anywhere on the spectrum happens when the gospel is proclaimed and God takes grace and changes people and makes them like him. And so what he says to the church is preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. We must prioritize the proclamation of the gospel to non-believers and to the church, like Paul does here. 
Because the grace of God is what changes hearts and produces different, sacrificing, loving, refreshing, righteous, just, truthful people and a people of those sorts of people who will regard one another and will regard the world with brotherly love and seek to do good to one another. It's the gospel, not the law, that does that. It's the gospel, not political power, that does that. It's the gospel, then, that we lean on and focus on and trust in and proclaim. As Colossians 3 told us, it's Christ above that we set our eyes on, not the White House or the House of Representatives or the State House. It is in Him we trust. And that's why we don't pronounce, and that's why I don't pronounce, on national or social issues. It's not our purpose. Even while the country is gripped with this whole shutdown thing. I've already said more than I ever say about that kind of stuff, right? Because it's not my job. It's not our purpose. It is our purpose when we step out as individuals into the world and face the myriad of issues and the myriads of areas in which we all interact. But God has put us here as a church, God has put me here, God has put this family here as a place in which we are incubated, changed, grown by the gospel of God's grace so that when we go out, we are equipped and enabled to engage with and speak wisely and listen carefully and love, not for ourselves, but for others trusting in him. That's why the mission of the church is the ministry of the gospel of God's grace in Christ, so that he can be honored and so that we can be made new and equipped to live for him in the world with eyes set on him. So should we be involved in, in the debate about politics? Sure, yeah. After you're gripped by the framework here of Philemon. So may God pour on us, pour on us, pour on us his grace. And may we be a people that we can say at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Shaping you and changing you to be like Paul and like Paul meant Philemon and the whole church to be. That would bring him great honor. That would bring great blessing to our family here and then would make us a blessing to the world and would point out to everybody, the thing you long for, that type of community, you can't get it anywhere else, can you? But I'm living it in the family of God. Not because I'm better, because God's grace is. Come and find the family you're looking for. That's our message to the world. Let me pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us by pouring grace on us and changing us and making us like this letter? And then will you help us as we step out of here and face all the issues and enter into debates and have to vote and things like that. 
It's all confusing. So shape us to give us your heart, to give us your mind and to make us wise. Make us careful and loving of each other and of others. And build in us certain faith. You reign. You hold it all in your hands. And therefore, it's going to be okay. Help us to believe that. Trust ourselves to you. Thank you for making that true. We trust you and love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.